Thanks, James. Good evening. Welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here, and what a great passage it is. Tonight, I'm hoping and praying that as we come to this passage, God would shape the way we think about ourselves, shape the way we think about the world, to see it through God's eyes. So I'm going to pray and ask God to do that, and just promise me you won't clap at the end of my prayer. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, as we come to your word tonight, we ask that by your Spirit, you might change each and every one of us. You might capture us with who Jesus is and what he's done and, and to put at the center of our lives, you and your kingdom. Through your word tonight, Lord, we ask you'd comfort us, you'd challenge us, you'd fix our eyes on what you were doing so we might walk away having heard you speak. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the core values for us in a Kiwi culture is that we generally all hate hypocrites, Right? I hate it when people are hypocritical and they say one thing and do another. All those people that are just a little bit too big for their boots. You know the ones that walk around and think they're, they're awesome? It's kind of like, how, how great am I? Don't you think I'm great? Why don't you tell me how great I am? Right? We just go, yuck, I hate that. Ah, oh, it's horrible. I mean, don't, don't you do that? No. Right? We, we hate it when people kind of big note themselves. And, and so when we come to passages like this, we start to think, you know what? The Bible agrees with me. We start to see that the Bible and our kind of view of the world, hating people who put their heads up and say, look at me, and kind of like to get applause from others or announce things with a trumpet or a fanfare when they walk into the room, we kind of go, hey, look, the Bible and I agree. I mean, listen to what the passage says, verse 2 of of, uh, Matthew 6. Whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Or verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stay pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Or verse 16, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, so their fasting is obvious to people. Kind of go, oh, look, I don't know where you are today. Whether you've come here trusting in Jesus, you're checking out the things of God, or you've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, you kind of go, oh, look at this. There's a sense here where what the Bible says matches the way our culture thinks. It's just so wrong, isn't it, when people do that stuff? Aren't you you repulsed at that? Don't you just go, ah, get away from me, you kind of full of yourself person? I don't know. I don't know what your response is. But for me, the idea of being like that myself horrifies me. I I kind of, I'd be like, oh, who would do that? I would never want to be seen as one of those people like that. Would you? I mean, who in this room wants to be seen like that? Of course, you're going to put your hand up. Right? See, no one does. None of us want to do that. If you did, it'd be the perfect opportunity. Me. <laughs> and it was like, oh, that guy. <laughs> but I want to put it to you today that you are exactly like these people. And so am I. We actually love praise from others. We just do it in a kind of underhanded way. Think about it for a moment. Let's say for a moment, uh, your life's been impacted by the Westpac rescue helicopter. Uh, it's a helicopter service that rescues you when you get in trouble. And wherever you are, they come, they pick you up, they fly you out. And in some way, you've been impacted by them. And you think, I want to make a donation. You might have a little bit of money. You might have a lot of money. So you ring up and you're like, oh, look, how can I support? How can I give my money to, to you like this? And they say, well, there's a number of ways. You could give like a normal donation and we'll just put your name on a, on a website of those who support it. But um, if, if you give a big donation, we've got a new helicopter coming up. And we could put your face on the side of the chopper. Westpac Rescue Helicopter, and you'd be there with that little ding smile on the side, and people are like, oh, because you've given so much, so do you have a couple of mil to give, and we could put your, your face there? 
Now, I think all of us at this point go, I don't want my face on the side of a helicopter, right? It's just kind of not Kiwi culture to kind of do that. I walk into the ONG Glen building and see all those names up on the board. Have you ever seen those? Um, I think there might be a photo of it. It's not the best photo. Um, there might not be as well. And there's all these names there of, of these people who've given. And there's like the top donors of the New Zealand government, over $25 million. You're like, wow, you guys. But we're like, we see that as something a little bit wrong. What would stop you from putting your name on a building or on the side of a helicopter? What is it that actually is going on inside that we go, no, that's no good? Because I want to put it to you that it is not the reason that the Bible says for why we ought to be humble. I want to put it to you that the reason you don't want to put your name on the side of a helicopter is that you want to please the rest of the world because you don't want the rest of the world to look at you and say, ah, you're self-pretentious. You actually want to fit in like I do. I'm the same. You want to fit in with the world around you. You want to socially go along with what other people think because we really hate it when people stand up and stand out. And so we don't do it. The Bible's reason for not practicing our deeds in front of others isn't that we need to be humble. We need to play down what we've got and our good things. It's this. You and I have absolutely nothing to be praised for. The gifts you have, the skills you've been given, the opportunities that we have are all given to us by God. So Jesus is saying here, don't stand up and go, look how amazing I am because you've got nothing. Everything you have and are has been given to you and me by God. We have nothing to say, look at me about. Even the money we give, the opportunities we have, they're all given to us by God. So what right do we have to stand up and to say, look how great I am? <laughs> we have no right. But that's not the way the world around us thinks, is it? It's like, well, you just want to play down your, your, your kind of the things that you've done. You don't want to kind of celebrate them too much. Look really carefully at verse 1 and have a look what Jesus is saying. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. The issue he's talking about is giving to the poor in this instance. Be careful not to practice your righteousness, your the way of living rightly. Remember, Jesus has been talking about his kingdom coming in, and this is what it looks like to live as someone who's in the kingdom, not in order to be saved, but because you're living that out. Now, the thing to say here is Jesus does not say don't give. He doesn't say be careful not to practice your righteousness. He doesn't even say, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Look really, really carefully. See, so often we don't give to others or we, 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 we don't think about praying for others because we use this as an excuse for private selfishness. I don't want to be seen by the world around me as someone who stands up. I want to kind of fit in with the, the humble attitude we have as carriers, which I think is a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. I want to be godly. And so we use our godliness as an excuse to not practice what it is to be a person of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't even say, don't do it in front of others. Having others see our good works, ready, is exactly what Jesus told us we need to be doing. Having others see our good works is exactly what Jesus told us we need to be doing. We said it in Matthew 5, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 16, on the screen. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So they may see your good works. I mean, has he forgotten what he said just a little bit ago? No, we start to see the key thing and the reason behind it now. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We kind of pull back in our humility so often because oh, we don't want to self-glorify ourselves, so we'll just play it low. Jesus says, no, no, no. 
You live it out so people can see that God can work through a broken, ugly sinner like me and you. And then people will go, wow, God's good. (laughs) The issue is, we need to be doing our good works because what we're doing is living for God's kingdom. We want to see that the core behind everything that's happening in this passage here is a clash of two kingdoms. Do we want praise from this world? Which immediately we go, no, I don't. That's why I don't want to have my name on the helicopter. (laughs) But I again want to put it to you, don't want your name on the helicopter because you want the world to praise you and go, well done, forgiving and not, not putting your name on the helicopter. How good are you? I want to fit in with the world's values and morals. The clash of kingdoms is the clash of the kingdom of Rowan. Insert your name there. Me, the clash of the kingdom of me with the clash of the kingdom of God. Do you want your praise or God's praise? See, what Jesus is saying here is that we are to live in a right way to the world around us and give glory to God. The issue in that verse is... Do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. The issue isn't being seen doing good deeds. It's am I doing good deeds in order to be seen? Say it again. The issue isn't being seen to be doing good deeds. It's am I doing good deeds in order to be seen? And I've been challenged by this passage today and I want to challenge us all. Who's kingdom are you living for? We might align with what the Bible says in our practice. We don't want to appear self-righteous. But it's actually self-righteousness that's causing you to appear humble to the world around you, to fit in with that world. If you recognize that Jesus is the king and you are here to be free to live for his kingdom, then you and I need radical heart surgery to place God's kingdom at the center of all we do, to live for his kingdom, which means living differently in the world around us. It means living, pointing people to God in all that we do. One of the hardest things that we find as a church to celebrate is to celebrate the way God has been working in the lives of people. It's not that God hasn't been working in the lives of people here at Uni Church and in our other campuses. God has all the time. But we keep finding that as we want to celebrate those stories of the way God's working in your lives, people are like, oh, I don't want to say it on camera. Oh, I don't want to talk through that. I just, you know, it's, it's not really, I'm not really that kind of person. I don't want to be doing those things. And people kind of, I think, are trying to think through, oh, I don't want to draw attention to myself. I want the attention to be on God. But in doing that, we actually can see God miss out on the glory of the way he's working in your life. And if I think that me sharing the story of the way God has grown me or helped me to see something or convicted me of my sin or sent a friend come to know Jesus, if I think that sharing that story is going to bring me glory, (laughs) then you think you contributed something to what went on. You think you've got something to offer because that's the only way it would bring us glory, isn't it? If we had something to say, yes, you did that. (laughs) That's not the case at all. Friends, I think we have a false humility that this passage calls out in all of us. That really, if we took God's word seriously, we'd want to be a light shining. You know, a city on a hill, Jesus talks about. Uh, Proclaiming the news of Jesus around, not to call glory to ourselves, because what is there to go? Look look how great I was at doing this thing. I can only do it because God's given it to me. At Uni Church, as a church in general, as Christians, we need to be people who glorify our God, not ourselves, who are very careful in the way that we act in the world around us, that we point people to God. 
But that pushed to encourage people to live for him and to, to point to his deeds and the way he works with us comes with a warning. We also need to watch our hearts, don't we? Our hearts are so twisted. We so often take the, the, the works God has done and apply them to ourselves, even though we kind of want to feign humility. We think, yeah, I did well. I, I feel this. Here's a real-life confession for you. I feel this every Monday when we look at the Connect cards from all of church. And I've preached, I want to look through and see how people have grown. That's a good thing. I want to praise God for that. But it's part of me that wants to go, yeah, because you did a great job, Rowan. You know, look, look how good you were. And then when there's other weeks when other pastors preach, and if someone goes, that was like the best sermon I've ever heard, I'm like, oh, stuff it. What's, you know, what about me? <laughs> you know, my, so I put so I time in. Does, does it not matter for me? And, and, and I bring it about what? The kingdom of Rowan. I don't know what that is for you. <laughs> we're so twisted. I even do it as I sing. So I'm singing songs about God, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, am I in tune? Should I sing a harmony here? What will the people around me think? Like, you idiot! It's not about you, Rowan. <laughs> We're so self-focused, and as we try to point to God and what God is doing amongst us, we have to watch our hearts. Where is it for you? Where do you begin to think, yes, I've done this? The way I work with this is not to stop doing things in public. Okay, I could stop this problem. Don't preach anymore. And Satan goes, woo! <laughs> now, for every positive comment I get, I need to remind myself that I'm just a tool. I've, I've given nothing to this. Yeah, sure, I've spent time working through it, but I've, using the skills God's given me, and I'm able to say to God, wow, you're amazing that you use a schmuck like me <laughs> to help people understand who you, the infinite God, is. That's incredible, isn't it? Every time God uses a schmuck like you to point people to himself, how great is God? That's what we need to remind ourselves of. That's what we need to keep working hard to remember underneath. That God has drawn us to himself, not because of anything we had. He's like, whoa, this is my A-team, guys. <laughs> you just got to look back to Israel. I mean, they were nothing. They were nobodies. The reason God chose Israel was so he could show to all the other nations around that this pathetic nothing of a nation he could make into his own people and bless them through it. It was their incompetency that brought about God's glory. Now, what we need to be thinking here is how do I live for God so that on that last day we might receive the reward? What's the reward he's talking about here? I don't think it's perfection. It's not living a perfect life. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. Only Jesus was the one that, that, that perfectly trusted his Father in everything and obeyed him in every way. What do we look forward to in a reward? Well, the praise from God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done at keep putting me first, even though you stumbled, even though you fall, you kept coming back and repenting, turning back, trusting what Jesus had done. It's living for God's kingdom. But living for God's kingdom will mean we need to do things that others see. It will mean we need to pray in a way that others hear. It will mean we need to work on our hearts because it's not all about us, recognizing our false humility and living for Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you don't yet trust Jesus, haven't really seen his kingdom, what his kingdom is about, I want to encourage you, come and check out who this man is. Come and see the joy of, of recognizing living for someone else other than yourself. See what your maker has done and to put your trust in him. Would it help us understand that it's about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of me? Jesus gives us three areas to apply this principle to. The three areas are giving, 
We're going to look a little more at that next week as Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven, not here on earth where moth and rust destroy. But the way that we give to others and what, what we're thinking about there. Fasting at the end. Now, fasting was a, a, a tool that we are to use and can use to help us remember that we depend on God. Going without, God gives us um, all. So it helps to remind me that God is providing for me. Helps me to come back to Him in prayer and praying. Why we come and ask our Heavenly Father and speak to God. And, and prayer is at the center of this whole section. And Jesus outlines for us how we ought to pray. So listen to what he says, Matthew 6, verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I don't know if you, as you read this passage, just following after someone prayed, and, and then now we, I prayed before the sermon, and, and you're hearing Jesus say, don't pray publicly. Does that mean we shouldn't pray publicly? Is that what's going on? What I want you to note is the text gives us the answer. How does Jesus say we ought to pray? See the first word he says? What is it? Non-rhetoric question. We're going to get us. Our. Right. Plural. Our Father in heaven. He tells them, it's not my Father in heaven. This is how you should pray in the closet by yourself, always on your own. No, I'm teaching you how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is not an excuse not to pray publicly. You can't go, oh, look, I'm being godly. I just don't pray in front of others. I don't want it to cause you know, any, any stumbling blocks. No. So as we come to this passage, we're going to see the key to understanding how we live this way, bringing glory to God and not ourselves. The key to right living, the key to who we live for and how we live, and the key to our relationship with the God who made us is found in verse 10. Jesus says three words, your kingdom come. Understanding those words, your kingdom come, will help us to think through the enormity of what God is doing in his universe and in what his kingdom is about and, and seeing that at the center of everything we're about is Jesus. So I want to spend a moment helping us to unpack the kingdom of God. So you're going to write a heading to help you this next section. The kingdom of God is central. Let's see why. See, in one sense, it's weird to ask God that his kingdom would come. Do you know why? Because all the way through the Old Testament, we actually see that God is king and his kingdom's already here. Let me show you Daniel 4 verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Right? God is king. Psalm 145 verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in his actions. Psalm 109 verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. How is it Jesus is saying your kingdom come? That's weird. Has he not read the Old Testament? <laughs> he has. <laughs> he kind of wrote it. Anyway. Not Jesus the person, but anyway, long, long story on the Trinitarian thought I'm happy to chat about in question time. The reoccurring theme throughout the whole Old Testament is that God is the king of the universe, that he made it all and he's in charge of it all, he's in control of it all and he rules it all. So why does Jesus pray your kingdom come? What is it about the kingdom that he can say there's still something more coming? Well, let me show you that the story of the Bible, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the story of the Bible is the story of God's contested rule to his uncontested rule. That's key. It's a story of God's contested rule to his uncontested rule. 
We'll rewind back to the very start of the Bible and you've got all creation made there with, with Adam and Eve ruling over creation under God. You've got God ruling Adam and Eve together, ruling over creation. And, and everything is great. God is their king. It's awesome. Genesis 2, sweet spot. If the Bible finished there, well, it'd be great, but not as great if it keeps going. But it's got to go a lot of downhill in order to get there. What do we read in Genesis 3? That God's rule is contested by this serpent. Kind of walks up, probably had legs then. He loses his legs a little bit later. Walks up you know, and plants that seed of doubt in Adam and Eve's mind. Did, did God really say you, you, you'll die? You'll not surely die if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? The contested reign of God. God's ruling, uncontested. Now here comes this serpent, the contested rule of God. And from that moment on, we are on a journey throughout all human history of God's contested rule, bringing it back to his uncontested rule, where he will rule finally over all. Paul shows us that trajectory in, in Romans 14, 11. He says this, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will give praise to God. That's not the reality at the moment, is it? People, not everyone praises God. Some of us here aren't praising God. We don't praise God all the time. We don't live for Him and serve Him. We live for ourselves, the kingdom of me. We're living in a time of uncontested, a time of contested rule, looking forward to God's uncontested rule. And when God's uncontested rule comes in, the universe will have arrived at its destination. And that's the great engine that drives the whole Bible, from God's contested rule to His uncontested rule. Problem is, you and I are so focused on what's directly in front of us. The things that are in front of our faces. Even as Christians, right? We, it's the things that of here and now that, that tend to drive our concerns and our prayers. Doing good to all, relieving poverty, finding comfort, healing, relief and rest. They're all good things to be praying for. They don't necessarily look forward to the future as Jesus does. When God's rule comes in and there's no more mourning and crying and pain. The old order of things are put away. When we, we sin no more, when there is no one saying, I'll, I'll defy you, God, because I recognize that he is king. And again, if you are here tonight and you don't yet trust Jesus, I want to say that is the future. Jesus died and rose again. He defeated death and said he's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. I'm not trying to scare you into Christianity. I'm trying to point out what this historical guy said and did that change the face of the world. There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. When you see the significance of that future, then the whole prayer that Jesus prays in this Lord's Prayer and the whole Bible hangs together perfectly because you see the heart and the purpose of God that's all about His kingdom. Imagine that day for a moment. Your kingdom come. When, when people are, are in right relationship with one another, when there's no evil, when there's no wrong, you don't have to lock your car or, or think about insurance or, or worry what will happen when you walk home and it's dark at night or, or think through kind of failing or your body failing or, or the problem. Imagine how great that will be. Imagine being in right relationship with the God who made you, knowing Him and Him chatting with you and, and you being able to share your life with Him and, and with one another where people don't do dumb stuff and say dumb stuff. Perfect justice. Perfect relationships with God's King Jesus ruling over all. Don't you long for that day? Don't you want to say, Lord, your kingdom come? It puts those prayers for a Ferrari. <laughs> Who cares about a Ferrari? 
You know, oh, I'd really, I'd really love it, Lord, if you could do this thing here and now. And sometimes they're great prayers, but if we're, we're fixed on the kingdom of God, man, it shapes the way we pray, doesn't it? But there's another complication with this idea of the kingdom. See, the day that the kingdom was expected to come in the Old Testament was the day that God would send his king to rule and end all of that evil. Have a look. Zechariah 14, verse 1 and 9. A day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth. Yahweh alone and his name alone. The Old Testament expected that the day that the king came, which is, which is Jesus we hear, the day he came will be the day that he would become king over all the earth. The arrival of God's king sounds amazing. But what happens when Jesus comes on the scene is he splits that day in two. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus keeps saying that the kingdom is near. Mark, he starts out Mark's Gospel, the time is fulfilled, Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God has come near. It's close. It's here. The king's here. But he then says, repent and believe the good news. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus would say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Here the king comes, but there's still more to be done. Make disciples of all nations, he says. The cross and resurrection shows Jesus' rule, that he's the king, In one sense, the contested reign of Satan has been put away because Satan's lost the battle. Death's been defeated. (laughs) Yet in another sense, Satan has not finally been disposed of. Look at Romans 16. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This day of the Lord that was coming that looked so final from a long way off, now when we get to it, it looks like it's been split into, into two. We're kind of present because the king is here, but it's not yet fully come in its fullness. It's kind of like weddings. Who's been at a wedding lately? Anyone been at a wedding lately? Some people in this congregation got married lately, which is exciting. Woo! Yeah, I was there. It was great. There was other people um, there. And and there's a great moment as you gather together and you see two people um, share their their, their promise to one another, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as they both shall live. That's That's what they say. And here they are, they make these promises and then the two will become one and you get to see you know, before God in the exchange of rings, the two will become one and I declare them to be a husband and wife and they kiss the bride, everyone claps and it's like, whoa, they're married. Yet they're not fully married yet. They're not really one flesh yet. The marriage hasn't been consummated. There's a sense where sex actually seals the marriage. And so every reception is a great time of celebration and also this awkward tension. In that they've started marriage, but they're not yet fully married yet. Uh, and there's this kind of waiting for the whole thing to happen. And there's a sense where that you, you're waiting for that to be the case. That's what it's like for us now. It's an awkward tension. The king has come, but not yet in his fullness. <laughs> He's not yet brought in everything to an end. We're in this moment of tension, this now, but not yet. We've got partially what's been promised, Jesus is king, but not yet come in in his fullness. So you can see why Jesus tells us to pray your kingdom come. There's a good illustration to help us to understand that, apart from marriage. I want you to imagine you're all sitting in a train station, big train station, lots of seats, and you're waiting for a train. And uh, your train guide, whatever that's called, AT Transport, I don't know, has told you for so many years that this train is coming called the Day of the Lord train. Right on the front, it's got the Day of the Lord. And and you kind of look down the tracks, you look that way and you see all down there, it's a long way off, we see the Day of the Lord coming. It's like a steam train. I'm changing the illustration. Uh, and you can kind of see some smoke coming up off it and it's kind of coming towards it. And you're waiting for the day of the Lord when it brings all these things in. And then suddenly it happens. 
You're at the station and the train starts going past. You're like, it's here, it's here. But you realize it's not just one moment coming forward. But there's a carriage and another carriage and another carriage and it's taking a while to go past. And, and, and it's kind of slowed down so some people can jump on and, and trust in the driver of the train and go to the new destination. And you're in this, this moment where the train has come but it's not yet fully gone. It's like yet left all of the platform. You're waiting for that last carriage, which is humorously called the caboose. I don't know why they call it that. Such a, I just got such a caboose. I know, say it tonight when you're going home. Caboose. I don't know, who says that word? Anyway, that's apparently what the last carriage is called, a caboose. <laughs> but the reality is when that caboose comes, no one can get on the train anymore because it's gone and left the platform. And the whole reason that God has slowed this day down into two is because he loves you and me. It's because he's giving you and me time to get on that train before that final judgment day comes, before the caboose brings in catastrophe. <laughs> and we have to face the music for what we've done. He's saying, get on the train. I paid the price. I've done it all. Jesus has died in your place. Trust me. I love you. 2 Peter 3, nine. Peter says this to all those who are going, ah, this day of the Lord, this end of the, the, the train, the caboose, it's never coming. <laughs> they didn't really call it a caboose then. But anyway. He says this, the, the Lord does not delay his promises. Some understand delay, but he's patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has provided an amnesty, a time where pardon is possible for turning our backs on God because he doesn't want any to perish. He's so full of mercy. So he's put this end day, this coming of the kingdom on hold or kind of split it in two and given this time of tension that we love evil and sickness and suffering to be put away with and we're longing for that day, but at the same time, we're longing for everyone on the platform to get on the train. But the very next verse, Peter says these words, 2 Peter 3 verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the day the caboose comes, the heavens will pass away, the sky will pass away. Heavens just means sky. With a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Everything will be laid bare, the motives of our heart, the actions we've done, the things we have done and haven't done. Friends, I'm so thankful Jesus came and died for me. I'm so glad the King has come, that he's taken the penalty for my rebellion, for, for living for the kingdom of me rather than the kingdom of God. Receiving pardon. Having that time when we can come to God and not get what we deserve is, is the future breaking in. It's part of the kingdom and we get to experience it now. We're like on the train. It's still at the platform, but we, if we're trusting Jesus, then we're on the train. But we're recognizing that the end will come. And so we have a, a desire to see people get on the train, to trust him. Now let me show you why this idea of the kingdom of God and the coming of the kingdom of God is the thread that links everything together in this passage. When you understand the time that we live in, that the train's at the station, the time is to get on now, before the end of the world as we know it, it dramatically changes the life that we live and how we live, doesn't it? If the train's here, the king has come, the end of all things is coming and we don't know when, we're not going to be going, oh, I wish I really had a more comfortable seat on the platform right now, God. Please, can you give me you know, a better seat, a faster, a faster seat, a better vending machine? You know, this, this place I'm living in while the train is here. Our prayers are going to change. The way we think is going to change because we, we've recognized the king has come. So Jesus then, understanding the kingdom and holding out the kingdom, puts before us five requests. That at least four of the five, but I think all five of the five, are about the kingdom. 
Let me show you. Number one, hallowed be your name. Jesus started out, don't do your stuff in front of others so that they might you know, you get your, your reward, your praise here and now, but do it so they might praise God on that last day. Let God's name be holy, be set apart. It's about His kingdom. Hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Let your name be the one that people come to with this uncontested rule and reign. Let people see that this world is about you in all my work, in all my actions, in my life. Let me live for your glory. Your kingdom come. May that day come fully when, when all things come to fruition and evil is dealt with and your plan is in its fullness and all the people have been brought in off the platform onto the train that, that you've brought to yourself. It's about the kingdom. Forgive us our sins. At this time of pardon, now the train has come to the platform. Help us to recognize that you've paid the price for my sin, that I can be forgiven. That our greatest need is our relationship with God, not the things around me necessarily. In verse 14, at the end of this section, Jesus will say, and it's on the screen, If you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. It's not on the screen because I forgot to give it to them, so that's my bad, not theirs. Just saying, don't want you to like death stare. PowerPoint people. Shout out for PowerPoint people. Um, we need more people to do that. So, If you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Is Jesus saying here that he won't forgive us if we don't forgive others? Is that what he's saying? Yes, it is what he's saying. I think so often we try and look for loopholes out of this. Someone's hurt me really badly. And we, let's be honest, there's so much hurt and pain in the world around us. But if our eyes are on the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom, seeing what God is doing, where his justice will come, that enables us to recognize that we've been forgiven. We've turned our backs against the God who made us. We've said, I want nothing to do with you. It's kind of like going up to your mum and going, you're not my mum to me. I don't, I don't, no offense, just don't care about you. We've rejected the true and living God. And yet he's offered us forgiveness. He's offered us to get on the train. Jesus died in our place and rose again. He's forgiven our sins. How can someone who's been forgiven so much say to someone else, no, what you've done is too much for me? We can't. The reason Jesus says God won't forgive you is that you don't understand your position before him. Again, it's come back to the kingdom of me rather than the kingdom of God. You think it's about you or me. Now, I know forgiveness is hard. It always costs. And God knows forgiveness is hard. Jesus died on the cross for you and me. He took the penalty we deserve. He went to hell for us on the cross. I want to encourage you today. If you're struggling to forgive, recognize that Jesus knows it'll be hard to forgive. He says to pray for this. This is the way you should pray. <laughs> that we might forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against others. We ought to be people who are seeking reconciliation because the God of the universe has sought reconciliation with us. Reconciliation between us and others, between us and God. Because we recognize the kingdom. If you recognize that the kingdom is here, then you're going to live for what lasts, not for the here and now. And the last one, do not bring us into temptation. Help us to live like people on the train. Not going, oh, I want to jump off this train and go sit back in my seat on the platform again. That was real comfy. No, keep trusting Jesus. Keep living his way. He's already saved you. He's done it for you. So Lord, please don't lead me into temptation to reject you, 
to live for the kingdom of me, to get praise from everyone else, to get my reward from other people rather than from the God who's worked in me and through me. Now, the only one that might not be about the kingdom is give us today our daily bread. But I actually think that's about the kingdom as well. Because it's saying, give me what I need today, Lord. Help me get through. Help me not to think, oh, I need it the here and now. I need to store up all these great things for the here and now. Help me to live for your kingdom. Just give me what, what I need. <laughs> Prayer to depend on God for his provision while we wait for the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Prayer to use our, our time and energy and our money and resources. All of those are to be used in the light of the time we're living in, not storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. So in your giving, in your service, in your growth as a Christian, as you share the reason for the hope you have with the world around you, Jesus is saying, pray and live for the kingdom. Can you imagine the moment Copernicus recognized that the earth goes around the sun rather than the sun around the earth? What's Copernicus, right? Just added this in now. There you go. Can you imagine recognizing the shift that would have come? They called it the Copernican Revolution. That the earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is. Imagine how hard it would have been to think this different way. And people go, no, it's about the earth. Friends, we need a Copernican revolution. The world is not about us. It's about the kingdom of God. This world doesn't revolve around you and me and our pleasure and what we should get, but about the Son, Jesus. And this prayer is an insight into the God of the universe, giving you and me a moment of focus. At the very heart and core of our God and His plans for the universe and His kingdom and its growth is Jesus as King. Jesus is saying that's what we're to live for, to point to Him. That's what we're to celebrate and, and, and give to and serve and, and, and enjoy with one another. We're to point people to His kingdom. In this moment when the train is at the platform, we're to live here and now, praising Him, shining like stars, pointing the world around us to Jesus, not ourselves. That's where life is found. That's what we are about, and that's how we were to pray. So won't you join me as we pray together? Our Father in heaven, may your name be holy on earth. May people recognize you for who you are, our God, our Creator. May you, by your Spirit and through your Word, bring us to you each day, each year. We pray that your kingdom would come. That the end of evil, the end of rebellion that we all so long for would, would come and people would come and trust your king. Lord, we long for the day that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, please give us what we need. Help us not to live for ex excess now, but to recognize that we have been given so much in the kingdom. Let that shape the way we live. Let that convict us of our false humility and Help us to be people who point to you so your name is held high. Father, forgive us our debts. We have so many. For so often we live for the kingdom of me rather than the kingdom of your son. Thank you so much that we can stand forgiven and come to you as children and call you our father. Our father. Help us to forgive others 
We've been forgiven so much, Lord. How can we ever hold anything against anyone else? Let us entrust that you will judge rightly, that the day comes as the end of all things comes, that the justice will be delivered. So let us be people that do forgive, that keep on working to forgive, that struggle to forgive, but that entrust it to you. And Father, lead us not into temptation. Having recognized who you are and the centrality of your kingdom, let us live for your kingdom. Show us where we're living for the kingdom of ourselves and help us to repent and put you at the center to turn back from that. Deliver us from evil. Lord, we long for the day that your kingdom comes. We ask that we would long for it more than anything else. And that you might shape us to be people who live for your praise and your glory. Not our own, but yours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.